That video kind of has the ability to take your breath away for a quick second, right? I think we all kind of have that collective moment where we're like, oh my goodness, I hope that that thing does what it's supposed to do. I hope that it holds up under the pressure because it's not like for that dude, if, if the guardrail fails, like he's going to need to call AAA and like get a quick tow, right? Like he's falling off the edge of a cliff. That in all likelihood probably spends uh, the end of that guy's life. Uh, and that's really kind of what we've been trying to beat into our heads throughout the series, that nobody really thinks about guardrails. Nobody really needs a guardrail until, wouldn't you know it, you do. That guardrails, because they're so commonplace, because there's just so many of them, they kind of blend into the world around us. They just kind of become like grass and lines painted on the side of a road. But wouldn't you know it, once you need one and Hopefully none of you guys ever actually do need a guardrail, but if you ever run into one, you're reminded of how incredibly important they actually are. And we've seen throughout the series that a guardrail is never placed inside of the danger zone. Because if that was the case, then the guardrail really wouldn't serve that much of a purpose. No, the whole idea of a guardrail is that it is placed well outside of the danger zone in order to protect you from those things that will ultimately cause you a lot of harm, the oncoming traffic, the cliff, the trees, the bridge. And when you run into a guardrail, even as we saw there in that video, it's going to cause some damage. There are going to be some scrapes. You might even need to replace a bumper. It might even cause some damage to you personally, but far less damage than if you were to run into, again, whatever lies beyond the guardrail. Now, obviously, in this series, we're not just talking about the role of guardrails in driving. No, the question that we've been really asking ourselves throughout the series is, okay, what would it look like if we began to place guardrails in other areas of our lives? What if we began to place you know, some financial guardrails in our lives? What if we placed some moral guardrails in our lives? What if we placed some guardrails as it relates to our relationships and our friendships? What, what if we began to put some guardrails uh, into our lives as to how much time and what we view on our phones? In fact, we've actually said this throughout the series, that any situation where you have a tendency to hand control over to someone or something else you need a guardrail. And what's so great about this, and this is really the big why behind this entire series and, and why this is so incredibly applicable to every single one of our lives, no matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, that believe it or not, your greatest regrets, they could have been avoided if you would have had some guardrails in place. Your greatest financial regrets, your greatest sexual regrets, your greatest moral regrets, your greatest regrets in parenting, your greatest regrets in your relationships, in your marriage, they could have been avoided if you would have had some guardrails in place. Uh, when I graduated college, I was driving like the biggest hunk of junk on earth, and, and that's not an exaggeration. I literally have never seen a uglier, worse-looking vehicle that runs in my life. I had a 1989 Pontiac Grand Am. Uh, it, the amount of rust was staggering. At any moment, I felt like I would hit a bump, and then I would just be like coasting on the pavement, and all the wheels would just suddenly be gone. It's the worst car. I'm not kidding. Right after I bought it, and I was planning on telling you this, but right after I bought it, I went on a mission trip to, to Brazil, and my buddy said, hey, I bet the whole time we're in Brazil in this third world country, we won't see a car that's worse than your vehicle. And we didn't. It was the worst car. It had two beast nests in it when I bought it. Anyway, I tell you all that, that when I graduated college, I had had enough. I, I was like, I'm not driving this car anymore. I'm sick of being embarrassed pulling up to people's houses. And so even though this job that I got at the time wasn't paying me a lot of money, in fact, I'll be totally vulnerable, I'll tell you, I was making $24,000 a year, right? So not like a ton of money for, for a salary, but I was like, I'm getting rid of the hunk of junk. I sold it for the same amount of money that I bought it for. Pretty sweet. And then I'm going to go to the lot and I'm going to get myself a new, not an actual new car, but a new used car for me. And so I went to the lot after I sold it and there were a lot of good options there that day. There were some Honda Civics and some Honda Accords and there were some Chevy Malibus and, you know, Kia Optimas, all these vehicles that 
tend to be pretty reliable, and if you have to fix them, they tend to be pretty inexpensive to fix. Now, I had about $6,000 to spend, and so I'm looking around this lot, and there's a lot of wise options, and then I look over in the corner over there, and, ah, there's an Audi. A4, Quattro, whatever Quattro means. It turns out that means that it was four-wheel drive car. I thought, that's pretty sweet. Had more miles on it than I really wanted. It was a little bit older, but it was an Audi. And that sucker had, you know, heated seats and a sunroof, and it just, mm, it drove. And I was like, all right. And after about an hour of being on that lot, I drove away in the Audi. And almost immediately, I regretted that decision. About 10 minutes down the road, the heat went out in the car. It was in the middle of winter. Turned back around, went and got that fixed, and that was just the beginning of a lot, a lot of problems I had for that, with that vehicle. I poured thousands of dollars into that vehicle over the course of about three years until I finally got rid of it. I finally said, I have had enough. But I tell you that because if I would have had the financial guardrails that I have in place today, back then, there is a 0% chance that I would have purchased that vehicle. Your greatest regrets, that was one of my greatest financial regrets, could have been avoided if you would have had some guardrails in place. And so the new kind of definition that we've assigned for guardrails as they relate to us personally is this. It's a standard of behavior. In fact, it's a personal standard of behavior, meaning that it won't necessarily apply to everyone and anyone else. A personal standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. What if we develop these standards of behavior that are so tied in with our conscience that upon bumping into them, that upon bumping into those guardrails, it feels like we have done something wrong. It bothers, it irritates our conscience that red flags start waving and lights start blinking, reminding us, hey, if you go any farther, you might very well end up in an area that's gonna be difficult to recover from. If you go any farther, if you ignore this guardrail, you might end up in a place that's gonna be very, very, very difficult and take a lot of time to recover from. And throughout this series, if, if you're anything like me, and I have a feeling that you probably are, you've probably been fighting this tension, right? This, this tension exists in just about every single one of our heads of, okay, this stuff makes a lot of sense. The idea of guardrails, it makes a lot of sense, but you leave here and you're kind of fired up and then Monday comes around and you're back into the real world and you're around family and you're around coworkers, you're around neighbors, whoever you spend time with during the middle of the week and, and then you're battling that tension of, okay, even though it made sense on Sunday, now I know that if I do this stuff, people are gonna think I'm being, people love throwing out this word, legalistic. And then they're gonna think that, that I've gone to the extreme and they're gonna tell me that I'm like overly religious. Again, we're fighting that tension that exists in our head and we've been pretty forthright about that in fact. We've told you that our society doesn't embrace guardrails. Nobody's gonna be patting you on the back for developing these boundaries in your life. In fact, our society, and we, we've all experienced this before, our society likes to bait us as close to the edge as we can possibly get and then when we fall off, they mock us for doing so. In fact, those same people that will mock you and laugh at you for setting up guardrails and roll their eyes at you for having these boundaries in your life will be the same people that will mock you when you fall off the edge. But believe it or not, this is how. Guardrails are how you avoid regret. Guardrails are how you protect yourself. Guardrails are how you maintain a healthy distance from the danger zone. And we mentioned this in week one, that nobody plans to mess up their life. None of you roll out of bed in the morning and think, today is the day that I am going to make a terrible financial decision. Today is the day that, that I'm going to cross that line with her, that I'm going to cross that line with him. I mean, that's going to be great. I'm going to enjoy living with that regret. No, nobody plans to mess up their life. But, this is important, most people don't plan not to. And guardrails are how you plan not to. 
Guardrails are how you protect yourself. Guardrails are how you keep a healthy, a safe distance away from the danger zone. And wouldn't you know it, your heavenly father, the God that we talk about here every single Sunday, cares so much about you. He's so for you. He is more for you than you could possibly imagine that he actually gives us a heads up about this stuff. In fact, all throughout scripture, this book that we often refer to as the Bible, it's filled with very practical advice at how you avoid the danger zone at how you keep away from regrets and heartache. And so if you have not been here for every week of the series, or maybe this is literally your first time walking through our doors, the practicality of, of this series cannot be overstated. I, I want to really, really encourage you to go to grumlaw.com slash messages, catch yourself up there, either listen or watch the messages there, and I say this every week, or you can find us in a Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you may happen to grab your podcast. And so today, as we wrap up the series, and today is the final week of this, you're, you're entering into part five of five, and some of you maybe are excited about that, others of you might be bummed out about that, but next week we're on to something else. But today, as we kind of wrap things up, uh, I, I want to focus kind of on one thing for the rest of our time together. together. I, I, I want to address the pushback to all of this. I, I want to talk about why some of you, even though you kind of agree with the stuff that's coming out of my mouth, why some of you will not put guardrails in your life. Well, why some of you, as logical as this stuff sounds, you're not going to make the standard practice in your life. Because in just about every single one of your heads, and maybe this will be comforting to you because the person to your left and the person to your right, they're probably struggling with this exact same tension, especially if you've been plugged in with us for this entire series. There's basically two tracks of thinking as it relates to this whole guardrails topic. One, one track goes something like this. This makes a lot of sense. You sit there and you listen and you nod your head and you're like, yeah, this just, this just makes a lot of sense. And you want this for your life. In fact, even more than you wanting it for you, you want this for the people that you care about. You're trying to scramble and think about ways that you can get this message to your, like, your college-age son. You're like, if you would just listen to this, this could be a game changer. You, you want to get this to your in-laws. You want to get this to your parents. You want to get this to your friends. You want virtually everybody you care about to instill guardrails in your life, and including yourself. It makes sense. It's logical. Nobody wants to live with regrets and heartache. Okay, So that's kind of one track of thinking. The other track of thinking goes something like this. You go, yeah, it makes a little bit of sense. In fact, it might even make a lot of sense, but... I don't think I want to do that. Because the problem with a guardrail is it keeps you from doing something that you want to do. You want to lease that car. You want to get that vacation home. You want to buy more of those. You want to date him. You want to date her. I mean, you're dying to go out with that group of people. Guardrails ultimately, come on, they get in your way. They keep you from doing what sounds good in the moment. I mean, that's the pushback. That's why a lot of you, even though you agree with everything that's coming out of my mouth, you're going to go home and, and nothing's going to change. You're just going to keep on doing what you've always done because you don't want to miss out on the action. You're not sure that you're ready to start missing out on the fun. Come on, let's be honest. You would never admit to this, but you like living as close to the edge, as close to the sin as you can possibly get. You don't want to miss out. And so, if you've had any of those kind of thoughts circle around your head, one, I promise you, you are not alone. Um, and what I want to do now this morning is I want to point you to two things that you already know, which is basically all that I do. Uh, and then I want to tell you a quick story, okay? So first, the two things that you already know. If, if you sit here today and you walk out of here 
and you just ignore all this stuff. You're like, it's just extreme, and it, it's, it's, you're right. And, you know, my in-law was right. It's legalistic, and, and I don't want to miss out on this stuff. And as you're weighing that, and, and as you're deciding that, okay, like, yeah, that might be for some people, but it's not just not going to be for me. This is something you need to recognize, and th- this is important. Whether you have guardrails or not, so that's everyone. Whether you have guardrails or not, the tension that you feel is not going away. Regardless of if you have guardrails or not, the tension that you feel is not going away. I see some confused faces here, so let me give you an example of this. The temptation that you're feeling, that tension, let's say, for example, that you're feeling to lease that car that you cannot afford, that car that you know deep down that you probably should not lease, even if you end up leasing that vehicle, the tension is not going away. Specifically, it's going to come back in about 24 or 36 months. See, all of us agree that out there somewhere, there are lines that we should not cross. We might argue about where that line exists, but all of us agree that there are lines out there that we should not cross. And wherever you put the brakes on, wherever that line exists in your head, that is where your tension is, and that is where your temptation begins. But the temptation, the tension, I'm telling you, it's not going away. And if you don't have guardrails, all it does is erode your resolve. And without guardrails, all you're doing is you're putting that point of tension further into the danger zone. And then if you violate that tension, if you jump past that temptation, the consequences are just far more severe. A couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about the guardrail of uh, if, if you're married, don't, don't go out to eat alone with somebody of the opposite sex that isn't your wife. Don't, don't ever do that. Now, I'm not a hypocrite. I practice what I preach. And you know that's a guardrail that, that exists in my life. And you know, let's just say, though, that I was really tempted. We hired a new person. One of you, you know, said, hey, I'd really like to go and, and get dinner with you. And, and I was like, I don't know, but I got this guardrail in my life, and I'm fighting that tension. But I just, for whatever reason, I'm just dying to go out with her. I'm just like, okay, gosh. And I do it. So what happens? I mean, nothing really, right? I, I just went out to eat with her. But let's say that you're sitting here, and you listen to that advice, and you thought, that is just so stupid. I mean, that is just like the, the most legalistic thing I've ever heard in my life. And you had all these reasons as to why, you know, you, you can't do that, why you shouldn't do that. But maybe your point of tension is, okay, I'm not going to go inside if she invites me inside. But now you're in that moment and she's inviting you inside. And you're like, goodness, I don't want to go inside. I don't want to go inside. I don't want to go inside. Crud, I'm inside. Okay, new point of tension. All right, I'm not going to go upstairs. Oh, she's inviting me upstairs. I don't want to go upstairs. I don't want to go upstairs. All right, I'm not going to take off my clothes. I'm not going to take off my clothes. Some of you are like, hey, keep going with this. No, you get the idea. Um, In those situations, it's just far more difficult to say no. The tension and the temptation, it hasn't gone away. You've just eroded your resolve. And now you are far closer to danger. You are far closer to a disaster in your life. Your temptations, as a matter of fact, and again, we know this, your temptations are never fully satisfied. Think about it in the context of food. I mean, this is a fact. The heavier you get, the higher your BMI climbs, the hungrier you get. Skinny people can naively look at heavy people and think, man, they just must never be hungry. No, not the case. Because, and we all know this to be true, go to the next one there. When when you feed a temptation, it grows. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And this is literally in every single area of our lives with food, with alcohol, with our sexuality, with our finances, when you feed a temptation, it grows. Think about the, the first time, and I'm not trying to you know, get you back to a place that was probably a pretty crummy time in your life, but think about the first time, men in the room specifically, that you looked at pornography. 
and you were fighting that demon inside. You're fighting that battle, and you're like, I don't want to look at this. I don't want to look at this. I don't want to look at this. But I kind of want to look at this, right? And, and you're wrestling with that inside of your head. The good news, right, is when you finally click on it and you see it, you're like, whoo, never have to worry about that again, right? No, not so much. In fact, the complete opposite happens. You are only tempted to look more. You're only tempted to watch for longer. Maybe some of you, you like to shop even though you don't need any more clothes and even though you probably don't even have the money to do any more shopping. But again, when you go out and you shop, have you ever bought the outfit that you're like, never again, never have to go shopping again, it's over, that temptation is just gone again. No, the complete opposite happens. When you feed it, it grows. You're never going to buy the outfit to end all outfits. You're never going to lease the car to end all leases. You're never going to take out the loan to end all loans. You're never going to have the kiss to end all kisses. And so, if that's the case, let's just think about this. What does wisdom say? What, what, what would you say to you if you had your best interest in mind? In fact, make it even simpler than that. What does just logic say? And this is not a Christian thing. This is just a people, a common sense thing. If moving closer and closer and closer and closer to the danger zone only feeds the appetite and it only erodes your resolve and erodes your ability to say no, then why would we not have guardrails? Because you're never getting rid of that tension. That temptation is never going to completely go away. But when you have a guardrail that exists well outside of the danger zone, you're drawing this new line of tension, and this is really key. The temptation becomes far more manageable. So here's my point to all this and why I just told you all of that. If you think that this stuff is just so extreme and it's so legalistic and as you're battling, okay, I just can't do this and you're not ready to miss out on the fun, do not deceive yourself into thinking that by constantly saying yes, you are never going to have to say no and wherever you say no, that is where your tension, that is where your temptation begins. And all I'm trying to do, all I am trying to implore and even beg you to do is to move that line to a place where it becomes far more manageable and the consequences in turn are far less severe. Because I promise you, I didn't get into this because I'm just like all about myself. I care about you. I care about the people that walk through these doors very, very deeply and I don't want any of you living with regrets because we all agree on that regrets not so much fun nobody likes waking up the next day and thinking what in the heck was i thinking all right so that's the first two things now let's go to the story here that i want to tell you uh, this particular event takes place at about 605 BC, which in and of itself I always find fascinating when we know things that happened literally like 2,600 years ago. Uh, this particular story that we're going to be taking a look at is, is a real event. Uh, it's documented in the Bible, but it's also supported by plenty of secular literature as well. Uh, and it centers around a king, a guy by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you have maybe heard of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was a guy that was a pretty ruthless leader, uh, but he was also very motivated and he was a very determined guy. And at this point in history, he, he is the ruler of the most powerful nation in the world. And how he kind of got this power, what he would do is he would go from nation to nation to nation and he'd just keep branching further and further and further out and he'd take these nations over almost immediately. There was very little resistance because his army was so incredibly powerful. Powerful. And once he kind of ransacked a nation, a capital city, what he would do is he would destroy it. I mean, he'd take anything out that was valuable, then he'd destroy the city. 
He'd kill a lot of the people. He'd turn some of the people into, the, into slaves. And then the royal families that happened to be living in that area, which typically, back at this point in history, were the most intelligent people. They were the best educated people, typically speaking. They were the best looking people. And so he took the brightest and the most intelligent people, and he would bring them back to the capital city of Babylon, where, at which time they would immediately enter kind of into like this three-year master's program, where slowly but surely, everything that they once held near and dear to their hearts, all their original culture, all those original values that they had, would be stripped away and they wouldn't even realize that it was happening and they would be indoctrinating with, indoctrinated with this Babylonian culture. And so again, it was like this three-year, very intentional program. And so Babylon, back at this point in history, you guys, is an incredible place. I mean, you're just walking around and it's constantly nothing but really good-looking people and people that on top of that were also really, really intelligent. And so at about 605 BC, the next area that, that Nebuchadnezzar decides, okay, this is going to be the next spot that I'm going to take over is Israel, and specifically the capital city of Jerusalem. So he does his thing, he goes in, he ransacks, he takes over the temple. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, King Solomon's temple, he destroys that, but first takes out anything that's valuable. But then again, he gets the brightest people. He gets the sharpest people, the most intelligent people, and he brings those people back to the capital city, of, uh, of Babylon. Now, four of those people are people that maybe you have heard of before, especially if you grew up going to church and Sunday school and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there were four guys by the name of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, so you got those four guys. They're now brought back to Babylon, and immediately, again, they're thrown into kind of this three-year program that Nebuchadnezzar had developed, again, with the goal being with the goal being that everything that you once held near to you, everything that you once held dear to you is going to be stripped away and you're going to be slowly again but surely indoctrinated with this Babylonian culture, okay? So there's kind of the backstory as to what's going on and this is where we pick up, all right? It says the king, Nebuchadnezzar, assigned them, being Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, I want to pause real quick. This is a good thing for those four guys. In, in fact, this is as good as it could have possibly gotten I mean, this is kind of like hitting the jackpot back in ancient times because, again, most of the people that he lived around had either just been killed or now they're slaves like working in copper mines. But he is kind of among this elite group that is brought back to Nebuchadnezzar's palace. He's brought back to his capital city and they're eating and drinking from his table. I mean, they're kind of living the high life. Again, it's about as good as it could have possibly gotten. They were to be trained for three years, that program I told you about, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And again, this is a pretty good thing. You could have a life doing this. You could have a family doing this. You were gonna make a good amount of money entering into the king's service. Again, it certainly could have been far, far worse. But Daniel, being a pretty smart guy, and they kind of pinpointed him for that, he saw through what was going on. He had the foresight to kind of look around and go, wait a minute. I think they're like intentionally doing something here. Because when they brought him to Babylon, to, to him and his friends, they, they gave him new clothes. And they cut his hair. And they pierced his ear. And they even gave him a new name. And they say, your, na your name's not Daniel anymore. Your new name is Belteshazzar. And Bel was actually... Uh, one of these Babylonian false gods and, and, and Belteshazzar literally translated me and it's like, Bel will protect me or Bel will watch over me. And Daniel's looking around going, huh, I, I think that they're very, very intentionally and very strategically trying to brainwash us. And he knew that before long, if he just went along with the program for the next three years, he would be Babylonian through and through. It would be running in his blood and everything that he once held near and dear would soon be gone, 
including his faith in the one and the true God, the same God that we talk about here on Sunday mornings. In fact, and this is key, Daniel realized something that a lot of us miss when it comes to the influence of culture in our lives, that compromise does not erase the tension. It only weakens our resolve. We can naively think, okay, if I just give in, if I just say yes, then the tension and the temptation is just going to go away. It will not be there anymore. Not the case. It only weakens our resolve. Back in the fourth grade, I was, uh, I was a very competitive young man, and that really you know, kind of spilled into every area of my life, including multiplication tables. Anybody remember multiplication tables? Yes, yeah, so all, all the adults, everybody over the age of like 25 is like nodding their head right now. They probably don't do them anymore because God forbid kids have any level of pressure. But anyway, um, we had these multiplication tables, and, and I was always second place. Even if I got every answer correct, there was this other kid named Andrew that would always turn it in like five seconds before me. I'd have like two problems left and he's getting out of his chair. I'm like, gosh dang it, Andrew. And it ticked me off. I mean, it really, really irritated me. And then I found the solution one day. They had this little store in the cafeteria at our elementary school that was full of, honestly, just a bunch of junk from like oriental trading. And there was like pencils in there and pens and all this stuff you could buy for a nickel or a quarter. And, and one of the items they had in there was a pencil that had the entire multiplication table written on it with the answers. And I thought, here is how I beat Andrew. And so I bought that pencil. And I remember the next time that we had the multiplication tables and they passed them out. And I very incognito pulled that sucker out of my desk and I was sweating bullets. I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, if I get caught, my dad's going to kill me. He's going to stab me with this pencil. Like, I mean, it was like, it was nerve wracking, but I did it and I got away with it. And guess what? I beat Andrew lit them up. And then I did it another time and another time and another time and another time. And every time I would take one of those multiplication tables with that pencil, it always got a little easier and a little easier and a little easier until I really wasn't even thinking about it anymore. Same goes for, for debt in our lives, right? For those of you that have been at this life thing for a little bit, Remember the first time you took a loan, whether it was a school loan or a car loan, and you're kind of signing that thing? I mean, you're, you're sweating a little bit, right? I mean, there's that moment of like, oh, crud, I owe somebody else money now. But wouldn't you know it, the more debt you take on, the easier and easier it gets. Daniel was smart enough to see where this was all heading. And everything that he once held so near and dear to his heart would soon be gone. And so he decides to do something that that I want to encourage all of you to do. It says, Daniel resolved. Other translations read, but Daniel made up his mind. Daniel put his foot down and he said, you can shave my hair and you can pierce my ear and you can give me a new name and you can give me new clothes, but this is as far as I go. You can push and you can push and you can push, but I am not going any further than this. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official who oversaw him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for permission not, again, he uses this word again, to defile himself this way. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why Daniel would have refused to eat this food. One goes like this. One narrative says that uh, that food was actually and wine was offered to uh, some of those false gods, Bel and Marduk, some of these Babylonian gods that they were worshiping at the time. And by eating that food and consuming that wine, you were acknowledging 
that those gods were real. You were, in, a, in essence, looking around to everyone else saying, yeah, yeah, I believe in these gods. So that would have been one reason that he might have refused. Another reason uh, would have been that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they were all of Jewish descent. They, they were devout Jews, and they weren't sure if the food that they were about to eat and the wine they were about to drink was kosher. And so they weren't even going to take that risk. But regardless, it doesn't really matter. What we do know is that Daniel said, this is where I draw the line. Again, you can push me to do all these other things, but this is as far as I go. In fact, and, and this is really the best part of the story, he made up his mind before he knew how his story ended. Daniel made up his mind and, and made this decision, and he hadn't read the book of Daniel. <laughs> Daniel made up his mind not knowing where this was all going to lead, and I, I don't think that we can totally appreciate the boldness of this decision. I mean, he has just arrived in Babylon, and Daniel at this point, he's a teenager, and his family's gone. He's got like these three buddies that, you know, he's kind of hanging around with, and, and he's now under the, the, the lordship of the most powerful, ruthless king to have ever ruled at that point in history. Some people still say that, that he was the most ruthless guy to have ever ruled, ever, in all of history. And he's looking at that guy and saying, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. In fact, Go back to that last slide real quick, Tim. He, he uses this word defile on two separate occasions. C can you imagine how offensive that term must have sounded to his hosts? I mean, imagine that, that, that if somebody invites you over to dinner, maybe somebody here that you're sitting next to today, you guys kind of hit it off, like, hey, you should come over for dinner. And they put some food in front of you, and, and you look back and you said, I'm not going to defile myself by eating this food. <laughs> And that would have been to just kind of like a random person. He is doing this again to a guy, a king, that is known to kind of have a short fuse. He's known for kind of having this no-nonsense attitude. And so he goes to the chief official and he says, hey, you can do all this stuff that you want to me, but I'm telling you, this is as far as I go. This is where I draw the line. And then here's what happens next. Now, God. Now, God. As you're evaluating this whole idea of putting guardrails in your life, your guardrails, again, because they might not necessarily apply to everyone and anyone else, and, and as you're wrestling with whether or not, okay, am I going to adopt this stuff kind of as a standard practice in my life, and you're weighing what other people are going to think about you, and, and you're weighing about what other people are just going to say to you, and you're thinking about, okay, what I might miss out on. Okay, if I do these gargles, then I might miss out on this. I might not be able to go and do this anymore. Here's the part that we usually forget to factor in. But for some reason, Daniel did not forget to factor in. It's the now God part. It's the now God factor. And the now God factor takes into account that God will not only use your guardrails to protect you, but also to direct you. That God will not only use those moments where we draw a line in the sand and we say, this is as far as I go, not only to protect our lives, but arguably more importantly, to direct our lives. And as we see in, in, in this story, and 
I, I would challenge you to read this for yourself. We don't have time to go through the, the rest of the book of Daniel. God, God starts using Daniel in some pretty incredible ways. And Daniel's decision to draw the line here and say, this is as far as I go, was the very thing that God used to direct the rest of his life. If Daniel does not make this decision, there is no Daniel. I mean, he existed at one point in history, but we're certainly not talking about him today. The book of Daniel is missing from the Bible. There is no Daniel in the lion's den, same guy. There is no Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego strolling out of the fiery furnace. There is no Daniel. We're not talking about him. Daniel had no idea what hung in the balance of a seemingly insignificant decision to say that I am not going to eat and drink from the king's table. And you know what I've figured out in my life and in the lives of so many other people, including some of you that are sitting here today? It's staggering the number of stories that I hear from people where they say, God made himself most known to me. God revealed himself most clearly to me in a moment where I drew a line and I said, this is as far as I go. And they look back and they realize that that decision, that God used it not only to protect them, but direct their lives, to completely change the course of their lives. And Daniel, in this moment, I'm telling you, he had no idea what hung in the balance of this one decision. And similarly, you have no idea. You have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to establish guardrails. You think you do, but you don't. And my hunch is, is that that decision, no matter what that tension you might be fighting right now is, it'll be a defining moment of your life. And you'll look back and you'll realize that God didn't just protect me, but he very well directed and redirected my entire life. Now, God. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And guess what? Daniel had no idea that God was doing this. He had no idea that by making this decision that God was going to somehow be working behind the scenes. And so they go to this chief official and they're like, hey, listen, uh, we're not going to eat this food. This is where we draw the line. You've done all these other things to us, but, but this is kind of where we draw the line. We're not going any further. And the chief official, again, he's showing compassion and favor to Daniel. He's like, listen, I like you guys. Like, I would love to grant you this request, but here's what you're not recognizing, guys. If I tell you that that's okay, and you start looking pretty scrawny, and people are looking around going, those guys get like a worm or something? Like, well, like what's happening here? I'm on the hook for that. The king will kill me for that. It is my responsibility to make sure that your guys' health is in a good standing. I can't grant you that permission. And they're like, okay, can we go ask the guy that's like one step above you? Like, would that offend you? And they're like, go for it. I mean, you can go ask him. So they go to the security guard and they propose the same exact thing to him. And the security guard's like, okay, yeah. And they're like, okay, okay. before you answer, how about we just give it a try? 10 days. 10 days. And if after 10 days we're looking pretty, you know, unhealthy, we're looking pretty scrawny and skinny, okay, at that point, after 10 days, we can kind of reevaluate things. But just let us try it for 10 days. And wouldn't you know it, he agrees. And after 10 days, they're healthier. 
and they're stronger and they're smarter. And here's how the story ends. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God rewarded that one single step of obedience in a pretty profound way. And continues, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are their new names. I told you Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got new names. That's the same guys. And so they entered the king's service. Go ahead. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them <laughs> 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And this is just the beginning of a journey where God begins to use these four guys in ways that they could have never possibly imagined, in ways that they could have never dreamt up. And it all started with one guy saying, I'm not going any farther than this. This is where I draw the line. And so here's my, my challenge for every single one of you that are, that are sitting here today. You just need to make up your mind. You need to stop walking out of here and going, I might, I might. You, you need to make up your mind and decide whether or not you're going to do this. And remember, if you refuse to establish guardrails, you are not getting rid of the tension. It's simply going to erode your ability to say no. You need to make up your mind before you know the end of your story because for a lot of us, if you don't, you can kind of predict the end of your story, right? I've sat in front of so many young couples. It's, it's sad. Like couples in their 20s, early 30s, and they're telling me about just this complete financial crisis that they are in. And they'll sit there and they'll go, I just, I just, we have no way of predicting this. We, we, we just, there's no way that we could have seen this coming. And I'm looking at him going, really? You, you didn't realize how multiple lease payments and a $2,000 mortgage and you're both bringing school debt into the picture and you both have credit card debt. You didn't realize how that was going to maybe paralyze you a little bit, how that was going to maybe cause a little bit of tension in your marriage. I saw it coming. You have to make up your mind. And I'm telling you, you have no idea what God wants to do through and with you. I didn't either. Friends, we are sitting here today because of various moments in my life where I said, nope, I'm not going any farther than this. And I had no idea in those moments what God was gonna use that one simple step of obedience for. And I look at all of you that are sitting here today and I want this for you so badly because I look around this room and all I see is potential. And, and I dream and I think about what God would do with this church. What, what, what God would do with this community of people if we would just establish guardrails. If we finally gave an opportunity for our obedience and God's faithfulness to collide. And I'll never know. And you'll never know until you do what Daniel did and you just make up your mind and you decide this is as far as I go and God very well might use that decision to direct 
and redirect the entire course of your life. Friends, we've been saying this, your greatest regrets could have been avoided if you would have had some guardrails in place. Which means, and this is exciting, that future regrets can be avoided altogether if we would just establish guardrails. But you have to make up your mind. You have to resolve in your heart, this is as far as I 